this personal brand thing is amazing. And if you're not hopping on this bandwagon, you're missing out. So entrepreneurs, people that work at Fortune 500 companies, solopreneurs, anyone, you know, you should have a personal brand and here's how to communicate effectively. Welcome to a new episode of Hype Fury Presents. In season two, I interview new guests with the same vibe and the same goal to make you a better creator. Today, I talked to Erica Schneider. Erica was an English teacher who didn't want to go back to a day job, so she started as a freelance copywriter. She applied to over 80 jobs per day in Upwork when she first got started, and one client stood out. Erica took a job there. Her boss challenged Erica to build a personal brand, and her first post on LinkedIn was an immediate success. It went viral. Now, in this episode, we talk about how Erica finally found her voice on Twitter because that took a while, and you'll learn how you can do it too. My name is Anique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Erica, so nice to meet you and see you. For people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm the head of content at Grizzle, which is a content marketing agency. And I also, about a year ago, started posting on social and now have this like side hustle where I run a course on Maven um, called Impactful Social Writing, and I help people make an impact with their writing on social. And yeah, just doing both businesses at once and having a good time. Cool. And, and tell me a little bit, what studies did you do? How did you come into contact with the digital world? Oh, that is a long story. I'll give you the, the short version. I studied sociology because I was one of those people that went to college and had no idea what they wanted to do. And then I worked various jobs throughout my 20s that I won't argue down with. But when I was 28, I decided to kind of get off the ladder that I was climbing in terms of startup, you know, corporate world, the blend that I was in. And I went to Thailand and I taught English for two years. And then I became one of those digital nomads that just kind of wanders around with the computer and pretends that they're better than everyone else. And I did that for a couple of years. <laughs> Honestly, that was really fun. I met my wife doing that. So I really actually did enjoy that. I couldn't have done that forever. Like I love now that we kind of stopped and we'll, we'll kind of do like a hybrid moving forward, I think. We'll see now that we have kids. But yeah, I um, I taught English, fell in love with the English language again, the mechanisms of it. And that's how I started writing and editing online because I realized that I didn't want to go back to some sort of regular job. So I just got freelance gigs and then that snowballed into content marketing and writing in general. Mm, very cool. And so it's so always interesting to see a lot of people think yeah, success came out of the blue, but you were already like an English teacher. So you were into writing, stuff like that. So that's that's interesting. And so... You started doing things online, freelancing. What did you do? Just like copywriting, writing gigs for people or? Oh, yeah. It was weird for a while there. I think my first gig was writing a 1500 word blog post on goat health. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice subject. You learned a lot. Oh, I did. I, yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned early on that you have to become very good at research to be good at being a freelance co content writer. I edited magazines. I kind of dabbled in like a bunch of industries. I don't remember half of them. Every gig was different. But once I realized like how content marketing and, you know, search and business blogs kind of were valuable, I leaned more into that because the rest of it was just editing random things here and there. And it's valuable, but I found the subtle persuasion side of content marketing really interesting. So, yeah. 
how, how did you like build that business out? Or were you just living from gig to gig or was it, how did that go? Yeah, I was living from gig to gig for two years and it was fine because there was always a gig. Yeah. And you were still living in Thailand. Yeah. I was using Upwork for a while. People have their, their thoughts about that site. I mean, it worked for me, but I had to hustle really hard. I applied to like 80 jobs a day for several months at first before I got into a rhythm of regular clients. And then obviously referrals are better because Upwork takes a fee. So I just sort of got a, this recurring client roster. Yeah, I was in Thailand. I Then I met my wife in Thailand and we hopped around all over Southeast Asia and Europe for a year. And she's from London. So we were always kind of going back and forth between New York where I'm from and England and then back up. Her parents live in Greece. So we've just kind of been, we were moving around. The only reason we stopped was because of COVID. I think the world stopped then. Yeah. Have you guys settled down now or did you? I mean, yes and no. Like we're in New York. We have 11 week old twins, which took years, you know, to make that happen. So basically started when COVID started and, you know, we're settled down ish. We're kind of stuck here because she's from England and she's got her green card but there's parameters on that. So I think we're going to wait until she gets her citizenship. And then the moment she gets her citizenship, we're going to leave again. Makes sense. Cool, cool. So you live from gig to gig, Upwork thing, but then you somehow discovered Twitter, I think. Yeah. So I got a kind of permanent gig, which was Grizzle, but it was a gig at first as a contractor through Upwork randomly. He'd never found someone good on Upwork and I'd never really found a, a client I loved on Upwork either. So we, we were each other's first in that sense. And I was, I made my way up the ranks at Grizzle for a few years. And then I knew that personal branding existed, but I kind of stopped my personal social posting a few years back as well. Right around when COVID hit, I just stopped posting on social. So I, I wasn't really like thinking I'm going to do the personal brand thing because I was over social, you know? And then I believe he challenged all of us, you know, to start a personal brand for fun and see if we liked it because it's important. And he knew it. And he was like, you know, I'm going to start one if you guys want to start one with me. Somehow the first post that I wrote for LinkedIn just did really well. It was like over a thousand likes and I kind of felt it. I was like, oh shit, like I, I know things that people want to hear. And I didn't think I had before that. So it was, it was validating. I tried Twitter, but it took me a year to figure that platform out. It wasn't easy. Why do you think LinkedIn was a home run, the first to first uh, post? I think LinkedIn lends better to slightly longer form writing, which is what I was trained in at the time. I feel like Twitter is more of copywriting, short form, just engage them from the jump. But also I was talking about hiring people. And I actually think the algorithm was just like, this is a post that really vibes with our platform and kind of shot it up. So it was serendipitous. I'm saying, but, but still, it got a lot of traction. And you think it, that was only because you were mentioning you wanted to hire somebody or it was... No, I mean, I'm, I'm being humble. I, it was a good post. It was a good post. It was interesting. I was talking about how I interviewed 44 content writers and most of them didn't make the cut, you know, and here's why. And it was structured well. It was a good post. It was a good post. Interesting. Okay. And at the same time, you also started on Twitter, but that was like flat. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. I started on Twitter maybe a month later. And I was just talking to myself for a while. I didn't understand the whole engagement portion of it because you have to engage with people on LinkedIn, but on Twitter, you really have to like make friends and comment on people's posts and get like, and I just didn't get it. So I was saying similar things and I also wasn't writing, like it wasn't structured for the platform. The way that you write kind of varies on both. So it did, I quit. I quit for a year because I was after a few months, I was like, this sucks. 
I'm so glad I went back to it because now I like Twitter way more than LinkedIn, which is controversial for some reason. You either love Twitter or you love LinkedIn. I like both, but I have more fun on Twitter. Interesting. Let's dive in a little bit because I'm, I'm interested in that. So you probably had, but did you also like literally start your LinkedIn account back then? Or did you always ha- have it a little bit and a couple of people? I've had LinkedIn forever because it was like a digital resume, you know, that you needed. So I've had that since my first job out of college. Yeah, exactly. So you were a little bit ahead there. You had maybe a couple hundred people following you. I had 500 connections, you know, from work and random things, but I'd never posted. I didn't realize that posting was a thing. I didn't look at my newsfeed. That's interesting. What I noticed, I'm not not very active on LinkedIn, but like the first time you post, that also like sends some kind of magical system signal to to everybody on LinkedIn. So here's the trick. The first time you post, it's going to skyrocket anyway. So talk about something to do with hiring. And you'll go to the moon. That's a good one. That's a good one. And so talk us through what kind of posts work on LinkedIn. Oh, man. It depends on, you know, on what you're doing. But normally, storytelling, I find, works the best on LinkedIn. So like something along the lines of, you know, last week I did this and then this happened. Or, you know, stop doing this because of this. You know, here's why. Authoritative, advice-driven. You know, last year I did these five things. And only two of them worked. Like, here's why the three failed and you should focus on the two. Like what you would consider, you know, thread-like material for Twitter. But from that storytelling authoritative lens, listicles work on LinkedIn as well, sort of, but not as well. Less of the, you know, 10 things that I learned in two years that I'll teach you in two minutes. Like that doesn't work as well on LinkedIn. It's more, you know, here's an, and that doesn't work in general. And I hate those, but it's more of an experience-based, you know, advice-driven narrative i would say yeah, that's funny we have a guy that uh, runs our linkedin uh, show and he's always like yeah the, the the only thing that works right now is carousels and i'm like no oh, i think we can do better i think there are a lot lots of ways to carousels are hot right now yeah but i still like i see a lot of creators not mentioning like 10 things that will improve blah blah and uh, i follow naharika who's like big on, on linkedin i don't know if you know her but she always brings something personal. And that's that's something that really vibes on, on LinkedIn, I've seen. Yeah, cool. And so LinkedIn went great. Twitter, you know, you just got upset and left for a year. And then, but why did you go back? So it's funny. I was kind of over it, right? And somebody tagged me on a post where someone was asking for guests for his live editing show. And I immediately messaged him and was like, hey, I don't have much traction on Twitter, but like, go look at my LinkedIn posts. Like, I'm the real deal. And that just kind of made me realize like, shit, I need to be on both because people are going to tag me in both. And I don't, I don't want to have to be like, look at me over there. Like, we're talking here, you know? So I had this like light bulb moment of like, I agree with people when they're like, you know, you don't have to play on both, on both fields. But in this case, like I was tagged in this place where I looked horrible. And I just felt slightly, not embarrassed, but like, you know, I need, I need to be present in these two places. If this is where my audience exists, if they're on both platforms, I need to be on both platforms. So luckily he was on LinkedIn too. And he went and looked and was like, wow, yeah, I'll have you on the show. And that sort of lit a fire under my ass. It's like, I better get better at this platform. Interesting. And you mentioned like, I need to be where my audience is and define your audience. And how did you get to that definition? Yeah. So my audience has actually evolved over time, which is totally normal. So when I started, I was speaking mainly to freelance writers because my gig at Grizzle was mainly hiring and training and giving feedback to 
freelance writers or contractors. So I had a lot of advice that I was giving them in my day job, and I just kind of moved that over to giving that advice publicly. And that, I think, really resonated with people that, you know, becoming a freelance writer is hot. It's been hot. You know, it's, it's a really good way to, you know, quit your job if you want to and go have this freedom. It's, it's what I did, you know, when I started. So I can relate to them and I worked with them. I was speaking to myself five years prior. And so, yeah, they were my audience for a while. It's evolved, though, as I've evolved, because while I'm still interested in helping freelance writers, I'm more interested now in helping like anybody that's interested in building a personal brand for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be freelance writers do these things and also build your personal brand so that I can discover you. And it's more anyone, you know, this personal brand thing is amazing. And if you're not hopping on this bandwagon, you're missing out. So entrepreneurs, people that work at Fortune 500 companies, solopreneurs, anyone, you know, you should have a personal brand and here's how to communicate effectively. So it's still effective communication, but I've just kind of broadened the scope of who I'm speaking to. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And so you got tagged, you were like, I need to be here, but you still sucked at Twitter. So what what changed? It's hard to remember the play-by-play. I think I wrote a single tweet that did very well. I had like less than 500 followers And I I said something along the lines of like, you know, content strategy and editorial need to go hand in hand and or else they're both going to suck. Something along those lines. And it got like 300 likes. And I was like, wait a second. It was weird. It was weird. It just took off. And I don't, to this day, I don't know why. But that's when I realized like, okay, short form advice here might be the way to go. I hadn't mastered threads yet at all. So I started there. And then actually something serendipitous happened. Somebody plagiarized two of my LinkedIn posts and I screenshotted them and put it on Twitter and was like, Hey, and it wasn't like, Hey, this sucks. I hate you. It wasn't a rant. It was, I literally said like, Hey, you know, I know that I'm amazing. And I promise if you try harder, you can be too. I think I said that. And that also took off. It was like 300 plus people liked it. And I got like 500 followers from it because people were like, I think it showed that I was someone worth plagiarizing. They felt bad for me. And I had this presence on LinkedIn. And I was, and so I was kind of bringing it over to Twitter. A lot of people actually say to this day, like, that's how I found you through that plagiarism post. So that was interesting. Then I started to play with threads. My first threads were horrible. The interesting thing here, but that's also something I saw in your profile. Like you made a screenshot of a particular mug. And I, I think you know what it was. Do you want me to say it or, or not say it? No, you can, you can, you can. I'm fine with anything. I wish I had it now. I've got a boring white mug at the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, the lesbian mug, the Lickalotopus. It's a, it's a dinosaur. It's funny. I didn't think that that would be controversial, but I had a lot of straight white men being like, I could get that mug too. And I was like, man, it's a free loving mug. Anyone that likes this mug can get this mug. I just happen to be a lesbian. Like it's up to you how you interpret this mug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because I think what's a good reason for people to follow you is because you use that humor, because you, you know, like, like you don't feel sorry for yourself, but you do, you know, you're approachable and you're, you know, people think I like this person because I can laugh with her. And that's, I think, very powerful. Yeah, it is very, very powerful. Humor happens to be my thing. Like I grew up with a parent that's... My dad thinks he's hilarious. He's not. But like he makes those dad jokes all the time that I've like sort of made my way into which begrudgingly. I don't know. My wife hates me for it. But I'm always kind of like cracking jokes, like singing stupid songs like that's me. And I so I think beyond the humor, which is important, showing up as yourself is really the through line there. 
whatever is like really authentic to you, like people are going to find that magnetic. So for me, it happens to be my humor because it's, it's real. I'm not like trying to be a funny person. I'm not funny. I mean, my wife would argue I'm not funny, but like, I think I'm kind of funny. And so, yes, I think it makes me more approachable for sure. And yeah, the, the feeling bad for yourself thing just doesn't work on any platform. Hmm. That's interesting. And did you also like, did you recognize that the humor was the factor that really got those likes and how did you then use it in? in Yeah, I think with the plagiarism post, I realized a lot of people literally commented and said, like, I love how you handled this. You know, you didn't get mad. You just kind of called it out with confidence. And I realized, okay, yes, I need to be my confident self here, even though I feel uncomfortable on this platform. It's all about projecting confidence. It's the same thing in life, right? So it's just getting comfortable being yourself in a new forum. And so, yes, that that was a big aha moment for me, for sure. A lot of people have imposter syndrome. A lot of people like are very scared of posting something on a timeline or on LinkedIn, wherever. What would you say to, to them? There's no need because it's amazing how many people need to hear what you have to say. Even if you're speaking to yourself from a week ago, you don't have to have like I got I had it easier, I think, than people that are that are just you know, figuring out who they are because I knew exactly who I was and I had five years of experience and I was speaking to myself and I had this breadth of knowledge that I could share, but it doesn't matter. I've seen people with no experience, you know, either build in public or speak to themselves a week ago or just show up, you know, with some personality that have done brilliantly on social. So the thing is, you think nobody gives a shit what you have to say. And you also think that what you have to say has been said already. And you know what? People do care and it it actually has been said. Like there's nothing that any of us are saying that's truly unique, but no one else is you. So your unique spin, your take on it, your story is how you stand out. And so it's worth it, you know? And it might take a while. Like you might you might not have success right away, but that's fine. Like I didn't. Most people don't. It's interesting. It's interesting. And so okay, you you start tweeting a little bit, you got some traction because of, you know, the way you handled yourself. Then you start with threads. Uh, how did you decide what to write on? How did that go at first? Maybe sucked at first, went better later. How did it go? Yeah. So the first thread I ever tried to write was on storytelling and how it was becoming this buzzword and like nobody knew what the hell it meant. And I wrote a post on LinkedIn about it that did very well. And I kind of translated that over to Twitter and it did terribly. I still had less than a thousand followers, but it got like six likes, you know, nobody liked it. And so that kind of set me back a bit. And I was like, this is weird. And then I just opened my eyes and watched other people do threads. And I realized that, yeah, the hook has to be incredibly specific and has to tell people how it's going to help. It can't just be this. It cannot have any type of like, what am I going to learn here? Like, no, it has to be very specific about what people are going to learn. No nuance. And then the structure, you know, don't necessarily tag a bunch of people in the hook or throughout you know, white space, make sure that every single tweet throughout the thread is cohesive. So it looks like one piece. If you're going to use images, make sure that they match, like just things like that. And so the next thread that I wrote, I think was like, if you want to be a better copywriter, but the struggle is real, you know, like follow these nine tips, something. And I kept the hook really short. And then I just listed nine tips and that did quite well. That did over 300 likes. And I, I was like, I've got this now. I've got this now. And now it's it's like a fixed thing in your content creation. You do like a thread a week or what's your system? Yeah. So before I had kids, I was like really good at this. So I, I was doing at a minimum two threads a week. There was a moment where I was growing at first where I did a thread every day, which was insane. That was really, really horrible. And I ended up deleting half of them because they were shit. But I, I was challenging myself to get better. And now 
I try to do one a week, but sometimes I miss it. And during parental leave, I did none. So for six weeks, I just did nothing. And my growth has definitely slowed because love them or hate them threads are, are how you get more followers. Unless you have a random viral bro tweet, which got me 10,000 followers in a day, but that is few and far between. Let's talk about that one in, in a minute. How do you uh, come up with ideas for your threads and how do you like structure the writing? Yeah. So the ideas come from conversations that I have with people normally in the day. So again, I'm lucky in the sense that I write about what I do at work. If I'm teaching a writer, you know, how to edit better, that's an idea. And I'll write down, you know, thread on the differences between these two types of editing. Or if I'm speaking with my business partner, Casey, about, you know, the ways that we can make social writing more impactful, like that'll be an idea. And I'll just sort of like in my notes app, I just write ideas down, you know, write about this, write about that. But I'm not really a scheduler. So I sort of just have my notes app. And then when the moment comes to me, I'll write it out. And the format depends entirely on how I feel like telling it in, in the moment. And, and the, the write the thread in one go and do the editing or just, just write a little bit or just outlines first and then come back the next uh, day? How, how do you work? Yeah, no, I do it all in one go. So when it comes to content blog writing at my job, I need an outline. I need to, I need to map everything out or else I'm going to just spend way too long on it. But with threads, because they're so advice driven and like much shorter, I find it easier to just get into a rhythm and do it all at once. So I definitely start with the hook. I always start with the hook. And then based on what I say in the hook, I'll structure it. So like if I decide the hook is going to be storytelling, then I won't have a listicle. If I decide I want to talk about eight things, then I'll do a listicle. So yeah, I'm very in the moment, which is unusual. I think a lot of people plan these out. And then for ideation, do you use some kind of system or just notepad or how, how do you keep track of that? I just use the notes app in my phone. I've used, I've used Hyperi. I've used Typefully. Um, I've used these systems where you can kind of like write a hook and then leave it and come back to it. So sometimes I'll write a hook and then I'll leave it and come back to it. But most of the time I just sketch it out in the notes app. That's just how my brain works. I, I get ideas all the time. And I find the notes have to be the easiest way to just sort of quickly write it down and come back to it later. All right. Let's talk about the 10,000 follower tweet. What was that? Yeah, that was interesting. So another thing that I noticed after being on Twitter for about a year is that a lot of people say the same thing. And it's usually these bros that are absolutely obsessed with getting people into the creator economy, which is cool. I'm obsessed with getting people into the creator economy as well, but I don't live in these absolutes that they do. So they are fully obsessed with telling people to skip college, right? And my thing is like, skip college or don't skip college. I don't care. You have options, right? Like I went to college and I got very little out of it. So I'm very much in the middle. Like, I don't give a shit if you go to college or not. I went to college. I didn't get much out of it, but having that degree did help early in my career. So like, I don't know. They're very much about like, don't do a nine to five. And I'm like, look, I have a nine to five and I'm a side hustler. Do both if you want, like, especially in this country and nine to five gets you healthcare. So I don't know, do it or don't. Like, I'm just very much like, I don't care. I'm very chill. I don't care. Like, do what you want. I like to show all sides of the story. So they're very much, you know, you have to do it my way. You have to do it this way or it's wrong. So I, I kind of made a joke about it. And I just wrote, it was one tweet and it was all of their advice, kind of like in a word vomit salad. And it ended with me writing something like testosterone, masculinity, you know, winning. And so I think the brilliance of the tweet was that people didn't know if I was being serious or not. You had to look at me and realize I was a woman to realize I was making fun of all these men that were doing it. And so the best part of it was that people were retweeting it being like, yeah. And then people were commenting being like, you fucking idiot. Like she's joking. So you either got it or you didn't. 
But either way, it resonated with you. So I think that that's why it went viral, because people were confused. Yeah, funny. With somebody who, who back then might have already had the rainbow flag in her bio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> funny. And you have 37,000 followers right now. At what point in time did you think, because like you have a fixed gig at Grizzle, you know, that probably pays the bills or at least for a part. And then you might still do some freelance gigs. But you also now with Casey, you have the, that code-based code uh, course. How did you come up with that? Why did you do it? Yeah. So I just realized that I wanted to make more money. It's quite simple. I want to help people. I have knowledge that can help people and also really need more money because kids are expensive. So it was like all of the things in my life coming together. And it's true. Like the internet is your playground at the moment. The creator economy is yours to take. And there's no need, even if you have a job, there's no need to sit back and be like, I can't do this. Like if you have an extra few hours in your week, you absolutely can do it. And so I've always wanted, to, I love teaching. I've always wanted to teach course. I've always wanted to run my own business with someone else actually, instead of like a freelancer. And I'm really good at social writing and I can help people be really good at it. So I was going to do it alone. And then Casey and I met on Twitter, which is another reason why I absolutely love personal branding, especially Twitter, because I've just met so many amazing people on it. And she had a similar idea. She loves helping people grow their personal brand. So that's how it came to be. And we're just getting started. I mean, the cohort course is the beginning. We're going to make a whole business out of this and do on-demand courses and have all of these digital assets and group coaching, and it's all going to pop off. And there's no need why I can't, like, there's no reason why I can't do that and have my full-time job as well, which I love, absolutely does pay the bills. Hopefully the side hustle you know, pays the debt. <laughs> if one can pay the bills and the other can pay the debt, that would be fantastic. Awesome. And then why did you decide on that particular course? Why not something else? Yeah. So I started actually, my first idea was to teach people how to edit because I don't think anyone else has a course on that. It's all about writing, right? Everyone can teach everyone how to write, but no one teaches anyone how to edit. So that was my first idea. And that's still an idea. Like I'll, I'll return to that, but I couldn't quite figure out like how I wanted to structure it. Do I want my audience to be freelance writers that need to edit better? Do I want to help people with their social profiles, learn how to make things better? Like I just, I really, really struggled on who I was speaking to. And so it was easier to just teach people how to write well, but specifically on social, which also like, there's a lot of audience building courses, but a lot of people don't focus on the narrative arc or like the writing components that make good writing in general on social. So yeah. But again, besides just writing on socially, like you have to know who you are and who you're speaking to. And that's not my specialty. Like I can, I can say that sentence and feel confident in it, but I can't really help you figure out who you are. And that's where Casey came in. So it just sort of came together. We built the course in six weeks. It was like a sprint. Nice. Nice. And was it the, like the first course you created? Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of internal training for Grizzle. So I've written, you know, the principles of online writing, developmental editing, all of those things for Grizzle. But I haven't made it into like course material. It's just, it's very much like long form internal training. So yeah, this was my first attempt at slides and speaking and all that. Interesting. Because probably most people just start off with like a PDF they sell on Gumroad and then they might transition to. That might be the smarter way to do it. Like start with with a low cost thing and then and then have the high cost ticket. I never do anything the way that other people do things. So I guess that, that works for me, but it wasn't intentional. We wanted the cohort thing, so we did it. But we are going to circle back like, I've written an ebook called The Book of Hooks that I'm going to start selling soon. So there's things that are coming, just doing it a bit backwards. Cool. And, and so I think our audience, I think a lot of people already have their course on Gumroad or wherever. 
if they wanted to make the transition to create a court-based course, what would you tell them? How would they do that? I mean, I do it on Maven. It's a great platform. And they actually just opened it up so that you don't have to be accepted anymore. So it used to be you had to apply and like prove to them that you were worth it. And now anyone can do it. So, I mean, I would recommend Maven. It's very easy. They have a landing page that is already built. You just have to fill it in. And they also have a marketplace, which helps you get students. So, I mean, I would just recommend going on Maven. You could take their their course, which teaches you how to run a course well. So that was helpful, a cohort course. And yeah, just give it a go, honestly. I think a lot of people, they might not have your audience size, but you also mentioned like the marketplace will get you customers. Do you also see that, that you have like people who you've never met will sign up to your course? Yeah. The first cohort was mostly people we knew, but this last cohort was a bunch of people that we were like, I don't know where this person came from. And I'm not entirely sure if it was because of the marketplace or just because of referrals or social. But I think the longer that you're on Maven, the more you benefit from the marketplace. So it's hard to tell how much it's benefited yet, but I'm sure it's it's helped already. I'm sure it'll help more. Yeah, because of ratings, and then you'll probably get discovered more and stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. All right. And so for people who are also into writing, but are still stuck at 33 followers, what would you tell them? I would say, obviously, take my course because it's helpful. Just a, a shameless plug. No, but I mean, you definitely need to know like, okay, so it's, it's really helpful to know who you're who you're speaking to and what you want to write about. You don't have to pick a niche. I don't believe in that. But I do think that it's helpful to know who you want to help because the way that you grow on social is by being helpful. People are craving information to improve themselves, whatever that may be. Maybe they need to change their mindset. Maybe they need to get out of a job and find a different job, learn a skill, whatever it is. So whatever you can bring to the table that's going to help people help themselves is going to get that engagement. So but if you only have 33 followers, you also ha- you do have to play into the into the platforms, right? So you have to find people and engage with them. You have to make a little circle of friends so that they engage on your stuff as well. Because you're not gonna you're not gonna go it alone, right? Like you could have the best post in the world on Twitter and it it just might not get the views and engagement that you want because you don't have those people that are gonna support you now, right? So I've just got like tons of followers that I consider friends now that comment on every single thing that I post. And it's been like that since before I even had a thousand followers, but it took me until like 500 followers to really start to make these friends that have stayed around, which is very cool. And I'll comment on their stuff as well, because you form this reciprocal relationship where it's like, oh, hey, like this is interesting. And then it's just this back and forth thing. And that really helps. So find people, go engage with them, engage with bigger accounts if you want to, but the bigger that they get, the harder it is to see things and respond. So Engage with big accounts if you want, but I would say engage with medium accounts or accounts your size are a little bit bigger so that you can grow together is probably more impactful. Makes sense. Great advice. Erica, this was so much fun. Uh, Where can people find you online? What are you working on? Go go plug your stuff. Find me on Twitter at Erica's my name. Find me on LinkedIn, Erica Schneider. Um, You can go to Maven and find my course, Impactful Social Writing. And um, stay tuned because much more to come. Cool. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. But before we end this episode, I want to make a gentleman's agreement with you. I keep sharing these amazing podcasts with you. And the only thing you need to do in return is to go to YouTube, search for Hype Fury and subscribe to our channel. And go do it right now. And I'll see you again next week.